So hi guys, my name is Diogo Bronze, you already know me. And today my guest is Michael Jones, E. Michael Jones, the author, um, founder and editor of Culture Wars magazine. He's the author of Logos Rising, Jewish Revolutionary Spirit, Libido Dominandi, and much more. And um, doctor, thank you so much for attending this uh, podcast in Portuguese, which I will later subtitle for our, um, get, uh, for our listeners. Good. Thank you. Good to be here. <laughs> Perfect. Doctor, I had a couple of questions around. Um, I wanted this to be kind of like an introduction to all the Portuguese um, people and Brazilians that uh, don't follow your work. And I wanted to introduce this as a kind of like a journey so they, that I, they can understand exactly where you're coming from. And so my first question would be definitely around the, the Libido Dominandi book, which I guess gives you um, an introduction to the past 300 years of, uh, of history that we'll be, we've, we're living. And so I would love to start this interview and um, make a couple, uh, just one question. And how are passions uh, connected to human control and, and the rule of nations, as you describe in Libido Dominandi? Uh, well, this goes back to uh, Greek psychology, where uh, Plato and other people said that the soul had a uh, three-part division. So you have the passions at the bottom, uh, which are kind of the energy that are driving the uh, human life. And then you have the will, uh, which controls the passions. Uh, and then you have reason, which controls the will, which dictates to the will the right way to, uh, to go. So the, the, the image that was used traditionally was the horse and the rider. And uh, th there were uh, Greek tragedies written uh, with, with this in mind. Uh, it's in Plato, but uh, uh, Euripides' play Hippolytus is also a manifestation of this. Hippolytus, the word Hippolytus in Greek comes from two words, hippos, which, which is the word for horse, and luo, which is a long, uh, a short word, but it has many, many different meanings. Uh, uh, we have it in the word analyze, which means to break down. Uh, it meant, could mean to untie the horse. To untie the horse, you would use the word luo. Uh, but you could all, it also could be to be undone by the horse. And that is the, the pun or the ambiguity that surrounds uh, the play Hippolytus. Uh, so Hippolytus takes pride on his ability to control his horses. Uh, and this is a metaphor for his ability to control his passions. And his father's wife, uh, Phaedra, falls in love with him, and she uh, tries to seduce him, and he's outraged at this breach of, uh, uh, of morality. And so he gets on his horses, and he rides away. And at this point, the god uh, Poseidon sends a monster up out of the ocean and scares the horses, and he gets trampled by his horses. Well, I mean, it all revolves around that notion of uh, reason, will, and appetite. You know, you've got the reins. Normally, you can keep the reins. You can keep those horses under control. But here's the god uh, uh, intervening uh, out of the blue, out of the ocean, actually, And, and it, the message is that uh, this is power, more powerful than human control. This, this is a, a function of Greek life where there's no Christ and there's no redemption and there's no mediating factor to strengthen the reason against passion. This, this is known as tragedy. You're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. So if you uh, resist 
the advances of your mother-in-law, one God will get mad at you. If you give in to the advances, another God will get mad at you. You're damned if you do and damned if you don't. But the principle was valid, and the, the principle, I think, is still valid for an understanding of psychology. That, that idea of reason and will uh, being in control of passion is uh, the fundamental recipe for uh, a happy life. As Christians, we have grace. Grace perfects nature. It doesn't destroy it. So the grace that we receive from the sacraments strengthens reason, strengthens the will, and allows us to lead a happy life in a way that the Greeks could not. Mm -hmm. Totally. And um, why do you go back to the Greek? Because it's the, why not, for example, start in the, we also have that in the Old Testament, right? We have, well, we also have some um, interactions between, but then it was revelation. You don't want to compare both? Why did you start? No, no. Start well, well for, yes, the same story is in the Old Testament. It's called Joseph, the story of Joseph. He had the same predicament. Uh, it was uh, Potiphar's wife who fell in love with him, and uh, she tried to seduce him. But uh, there's no psychology. Uh, I, there's no explicit psychology in the Old Testament. This is the difference between Greek and Hebrew. You can tell the same story. Greek, uh, Greek will try and break it down and analyze it and come up with an abstract explanation. The Hebrews don't do that. They have the same story. It's the same message, but there's no uh, uh, philosophical explanation of what's going on there. That's the difference between Hebrew and Greek, the Old Testament and Greek philosophy. Uh, and what, why do you, does your book, The Libido Dominandi, starts in um, the French Revolution? You made it on purpose to start it there. You could start probably earlier. Uh, I don't know if you made uh, some research on earlier events, but definitely the French Revolution is what we are we are still living the fruits out of it and we are still being in a way kind of like our society is still being destroyed by the fruits of it. But maybe this is my interpretation of it. Why did you start it there in the French revolution? Because this book is about the political manipulation of passion. And that is new beginning with the French revolution. I don't, I don't know. If, uh, I begin by talking about the Marquis de Sade and the Illuminati and Adam Weishaupt, and the whole taking the Jesuit examination of conscience and turning it upside down. The, the political mobilization of sexual passion uh, was never made explicit before that time, as far as I know it. Now, now uh, the Marquis de Sade did mention uh, Lycurgus, uh, one of the, uh, a Greek, uh, Spartan, actually, uh, who said to exhibit women naked in the theater as a way of arousing passion, because passion is needed if you're going to have some type of revolutionary movement or a war or something like that. So he, it was obviously implicit before that time, but I, used, I began the book because the Marquis de Sade is the first man who made this m political manipulation of passion explicit. Mm -hmm. And today you can see it all over, right? Even in the, uh, I'm in Portugal, but everybody needs to follow up or at least everybody needs, or it's a, um, it's out there everywhere. The class, political class that you have now in the US, it's kind of still the same, but at the same time, it's so bad and so much worse than in the French Revolution because it seems like both sides, you had Christendom before and opposing that you had 
Marquise de Sade and all the immorality they wanted to um, to basically unleash in the streets. And now you ha- kind of like have both parties are kind of like the same. They're, they're not the same, but they're defending pretty much in crucial points, the kind of like the same ideas, or am I wrong? No, no, you're right. You're right. I mean, why is it that now we're having a debate over hate speech, over what is permissible on the internet? And why is pornography not included in that debate? Why, why is pornography suddenly, suddenly acceptable? And let's say uh, criticism of Israel is not acceptable or, or uh, uh, um, disagreeing with Anthony Fauci on the cure for the COVID virus, that's no longer acceptable. There's one answer to that question, and it is the rise of the Jews in American public life. Uh, the Jews are the group of people that created pornography in America. They, they produced it. They justified it. They changed the law to accommodate it, and they control the distribution of it and production of it. So you can't talk about this without talking about the role the Jews have played. Now, in any culture, uh, you're going to have a choice. Uh, Either you're going to have a Christian culture or you're going to have a Jewish culture uh, because they're antithetical. They believe in antithetical things. It goes all the way back to the Bible. You can have logos or you can have anti-logos, but you can't have both. And okay. what of the in-betweens? Uh, nowadays, people tend to like think about multiculturalism where you can have Islam and all. Here in Portugal, we have the idea that Islam is kind of like one of the, uh, kind of like an attack hound of the Jews, but uh, this is usually not said in public, but that's like we, w- how we, we see things because we were, I don't know if you probably know that Portugal, Portugal was under the uh, Muslim um, dominance up until um, it was a 10th century or 11th century. Um, Portugal, you mean? Yeah, Portugal. Portugal yes. yes. So yes. we kind of have uh, experienced living under um, Muslims, although it was long, a long time ago. We still have their architecture. We still have their presence right. even in our genes. But is it possible? Are, are not they the same, are made of the same matter or uh, accidents of the same nature? No, no. Okay. What you see is historically conditioned. So when you have a situation where Christianity is strong, the Jews will ally with any group that is opposed to Christianity. At this point, uh, Islam uh, ruled Spain, and when Islam ruled Spain, the Jews were allied with the Muslims against Christianity. They will always side against Christianity. So, uh, and that led to uh, unhappy, unhappy outcome for the for the Jews, because when uh, after the Reconquista it was clear that the Jews were conniving with the Muslims to overthrow the uh, Christian attempt to uh, reassert itself. And so the Jews ended up getting expelled from uh, Spain and Portugal. Okay. And at this point they split up and one group went to the Spanish Netherlands and Holland, and they created an alliance with the Dutch and another group went to Turkey and they uh, created an alliance with uh, the Sultan. They were working, they were called uh, uh, Donme. Donme is a to- Turkish word for converso. Don means to turn in Turkish. Okay, so then they're allied with, uh, the, the, with the Turks because, again, the Turks are the enemies uh, of Christendom. But then they have their own revolutionary movement, the rise of Shabbatai Zivi, and Shabbatai Zivi uh, is the Messiah. He's accepted uh, as the Jewish Messiah by all of the, uh, the synagogues in Europe. 
He goes to Constantinople, goes to Istanbul, and he's going to take the turban from the caliph's head. Well, the caliph uh, captures him and offers him a choice. He said, if you're the, truly the Messiah, we will uh, put our archers here and we'll shoot arrows at you, and they obviously will not hurt you if you're the Messiah. And he says, well, wait, okay, on second thought, and he becomes a Muslim. But then he, and so this is a catastrophe for the Jews because they, they put all their eggs in that basket. And now he becomes a Muslim, and, and, but he's telling his followers, no, I didn't really become a Muslim. I'm still a Jew. It's and a, so you have this, this false conversion, this converso attitude um, that permeates the donme and plays a role in Turkish life all the way up to fir the First World War. When the when the young Turks overthrew the uh, the, the the sultan, so so it, 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 it depends on the situation. So, so once once you establish the state of Israel as a foreign body within the Islamic world, well, they're not going to be friends anymore. Uh, now they're the yes. enemies, and now the United they use the United States as their proxy warrior to attack. Uh, they're uh, Islam. Uh, uh, currently, it's Iran is the main enemy of, of, of those people. So now they, they're not friends. This is all, you have to get the historical period right in order to understand how the alliances work. So uh, actually, the, 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 um, when we expelled the Muslims from Portugal, they ended up in, in Holland and they actually started funding and creating those central banks and those banks that you we mean, have. When you expelled the Jews from Portugal. Yeah. Exactly. It was, it was the Jews who went to uh, Holland. Yeah. Yeah. And that and was that was the first bank. The Visselbank in Amsterdam was the first bank where they actually uh, used uh, what was the beginning of paper money. Yeah. But the Jews have always been involved in usury. Which is which is something that most Catholics do do not even have a concept that is still a sin to to practice usury as it is practiced under cap capitalism. Um, so, which is something that I would like to ask maybe a bit later. Now, I would love to since we started in Libido Dominandi, I would like to ask about the revolutionary period that happened also in in Russia because this is too connected with Portugal and the Fatima message. Uh, I don't know your interpretation on this. Um, And um, just to, I would love to hear it. So when Our Lady appeared to the, the three children, she told them that the, unless Russia was to be consecrated to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, or else the errors of Russia would spread. And um, actually they did spread. The consecration was tried a couple of times. What's your perspective on that? Yes, uh, the Blessed Mother told the children at Fatima, Russia will spread her errors. Now, I'm, I don't want to correct the Blessed Mother here, okay? But if she had said the Soviet Union will spread its errors, none of those children would have been able to, to convey that message because they didn't, they, could, they didn't know what the Soviet Union was. They didn't so, know at the time. Even Russia, no, they, they were... They were no, they, did, they didn't know that. They didn't know that. And so they said, she said Russia because she had to say Russia to be understood. Now, this has led to what I have called Fatima fundamentalism, okay? What, are, what is the message of Fatima about? It's about communism. It's about the role that communism is going. That was an unprecedented error, uh, and it was a, a danger to all of Western civilization at that time, and the Blessed Mother, heaven felt that they had to warn us. Um, 
But what is Fatima fundamentalism? Uh, I think that the consecration took place. I, we know now that Russia is a Christian country. It's officially Christian in a way the United States of America is not. It's, they're Russian Orthodox, but they, they're Christian. Okay? Now, there was a moment, and I got into a big argument with uh, Robertson Jenis about this. It's on the pages of Culture Wars magazine, the letters column, where I said, if you keep using this word Russia as, uh, and not distinguishing between Russia and the Soviet Union, you're playing right into the hands of neoconservative American foreign policy, which is trying to demonize Russia as a, 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 a problem in the world. Russia is not a problem in the world now. The United States is the main problem in the world right now, especially when it comes to Europe. So if you make that distinction, uh, you, I, you'd have to say, well, the, this, the message of Fatima was intended for a particular moment in history. It was denouncing a particular error in human history, namely communism, and it proposed the antidote. And I think that Russia has accepted the antidote. They've become a Christian country. And so that 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 caveat, that warning, or that, uh, that uh, sanction no longer applies against Russia. It's over. The era of Fatima is over. And is it, is it possible to say that the errors of Russia or the Soviet Union um, are now spreading and are advancing in the U.S. Far greater, in a greater way than they are in Russia now? Because it's kind of like the same thing. Like their immorality on the streets, in TV, in media, the destruction of family, destruction of um, Catholicism. You can see that with the empire that the... Um, in a way that the United States, you're an American, I don't want to bash uh, on no, your No, you're country. not going to offend me, don't worry. <laughs> so um, what, what we've seen in the past few, ye few years or 50 years is like a, an imperialism that has waged war against um, Christianity. And That's for, right. Yeah, and why is this not clear for even Catholics in the US, for example, when they are deciding to vote for either Trump or Biden and they can't see it, it's the same thing? Well. What is happening there in terms of cultural uh, revolution? Because it seems like there are there is cultural revolution in the streets, but right. yeah. So what does what does the cultural revolution in the United States have in common with the Bolshevik revolution in Russia? There's one group that is dominant in both of those areas. And now, what's the name of that group? Do you know? Yeah. Well. <laughs> Oh, you know, and, and you're, you're reluctant to say that word yes. because all over the world, everyone is reluctant to say that word. It's the Jews. The Jews were behind Bolshevism. Bolshevism was a Jewish political movement. When the one month after the Russian Revolution in November of 1917, Lenin created the Cheka, the Extraordinary Committee to Fight Terrorism. This was the secret police Uh, it was uh, it was staffed by Jews because Russians would not torture and murder other Russians. It's that simple. Salo Barone says this. He's a Jewish historian. It's just common knowledge. You, you know this. We have the same type of situation now. We have uh, the first of all, neoconservatism was a Jewish political movement. It was it was created by a man by the name of Irving Kristol, who was a Trotskyite in the 1930s. Okay, that took over uh, uh, America's foreign policy under George W. Bush, and that led to the invasion of Iraq, which was purely for Israel's interest, not for any other reason. Now we have a revolution, 
that is being run by two groups uh, on the ground, Antifa and Black Lives Matter. Antifa is a Jewish organization. Just look it up. It began in the 1930s as a response to fascism. Okay, there is no fascism anymore. What they're trying to do is use this as a front for revolution. Black Lives Matter is a, these are both Marxist groups. Okay, and Black Lives Matter is a resurrection of the Black Jewish Alliance that got created in the 1915 with the lynching of Leo Frank. Okay, you cannot talk about intelligently about what is happening in the, in the United States if you just talk about Americans. That has never been the case in America. America is a group, a, a country that is based on three ethnic groups, Protestant, Catholic, and Jew. It's like Yugoslavia, which had three ethnic groups based on religion as well, Serb, Croat, and Muslim. Okay, these groups are at war with each other. They have always been at war with each other with the creation of a, a, a Jewish minority, which began at the, in the early 20th century. Their vehicle has always been control of communication. They took over Hollywood. They created Hollywood. They were using it uh, to subvert the morals of the American people by producing what was obscene and um, obscenity, nudity in films at that time. The Catholics held them in check for 31 years until the Second Vatican Council. After the Second Vatican Council, they capitulated and the Jews took over our culture. That's the predicament that we're in right now. And the problem is no one's allowed to talk about it. <laughs> if, you, if, you, if you say something like the Jews uh, control pornography, that will be considered hate speech and you will be banned from the Internet. Well, the Jews themselves say this. You can't even quote a Jew. Yeah. If, if you say the Jews are behind gay marriage. You will be banned from Facebook or Twitter or, or YouTube. Well, the Jews say that. Amy Dean bragged about that in Tikkun magazine. This is an intolerable situation. And this is what happens when you allow Jews to have positions of power in your culture. They will eliminate any freedom whatsoever as, insofar as it concerns criticism of Jews. The classic example of this is a man, you can Google it or look him up, Alan Dershowitz formerly of the uh, law school at Harvard. In 1972, Alan Dershowitz can be seen on YouTube uh, with William Buckley defending deep throat pornography as free speech. Yeah. 50 years later, he's standing next to Donald Trump, uh, signing a bill making it illegal to criticize Israel. This is the type of hypocrisy and mendacity that, we, that you can expect from Jews. And if, you, and if we can't address it, we are going to lose this battle right now. And two questions. How come the, do, do Catholics are now supporting Trump, which is, I would say, uh, from my point of view, a bit of a naive position? I know it's the best of, the bo of both candidates, but in, uh, in a way, Trump is still pro-abortion. He's still uh, pro-GBT. No, no, wait a minute. Wait a minute. He is the most pro-life president in the history of the United States. He's not pro-abortion. No, uh, but, but he still agrees with abortion in uh, certain cases, which is... No, he's, mo he's the most pro-life president in the history of the United States. What his personal opinions are, are irrelevant. Every, yeah, go to LifeSite News. They sing Trump's praises all the time. So you can't say he's anyway pro-abortion. Maybe he was at some point, but he's not that way anymore. Got it. If, you, it... Want, if you want to, the simple answer to that question is, first of all, uh, 
Trump is the lesser of two evils. When you, when you have to vote, when you have to choose between two people, you're always choosing the lesser of two evils. We do not have a parliamentary system here. It's always either Democrat or Republican. That's the, that's the problem that we face as Americans. Yep. You know, there, obviously, the, I am in total disagreement with Trump's foreign policy. I mean, he campaigned in 2016 on the platform of America first. Our foreign policy is now Israel first. No, it's obvious. His, his, they they his, delivered the keys of the White House to... Yeah, he just gave the keys to Benjamin Netanyahu. I mean, this is, uh, how, can I, how can I vote for someone like this? You know, I mean, the point here is, uh, it's a disaster. His policy with Iran is a disaster from the point of view simply of American foreign policy. Not, not even mentioning the fact that it's immoral in the way it's treating the Iranian people. I mean, it is driving, it has driven Iran into the arms of China. It has united the Eurasian landmass. That's not something that the head of the American empire wants to do. That was not his intention, but it's what Hegel calls the cunning of reason. That was the result of handing America's foreign policy over to three rich Jews. Mm -hmm. It's a disaster. Now, in, with, with all the spring, uh, the Arab spring that, Basically, you know, the Jews killed off everybody in the Mediterranean, um, near Egypt, Syria, and uh, well, Syria, they haven't still destroyed Assad, but that's the point of this. So obviously, the Iran will turn away to the other side. And be right, back. that's what happened. Yeah, so that's, they're just reacting. What else can they do, Syria? Was right, right. If you're going to destroy their ability to sell oil or have engaged in any type of foreign trade, they have to do it. It's a matter of survival. And so the trains now, the train uh, from Beijing or from Shanghai just pulled into Tehran and there's a big celebration. I am not happy with this. I have friends who are Iranians. I've been in Iran. They love the American people. They don't like the government. They're, they're, they're the most polite, friendly people in the world, and they, uh, they speak English. This is all going to change now. Okay? Uh, they, they are now going to have Chinese as their first foreign language and not English. This is a disaster for the world, not just for uh, Iran for, or America. It's a disaster for the world. The other thing is that um, they are going to – import Chinese-style surveillance and impose it on the Iranian people. This is a, this another disaster for the Iranian people. It's bad, and it all goes back to Donald Trump handing his foreign policy over to three rich Jews and doing the bidding of Benjamin Netanyahu. That's been a disaster for America and a disaster for the world. But that's not only for Donald Trump that did that, right? So the past 10 years, 15 years, uh, the U.S. has been... Um creating a clash in the Middle East for Israel. So it's not something... Well, yeah, I mean, yes, you can say that beginning in 1948, when they recognized Israel, it's been... Uh, but <laughs> it's gotten yeah. worse. I mean, it could, the, 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 the nuclear agreement was a good idea. You know, it was done by Obama and John Kerry. It was a good idea. Maybe they had bad intentions behind it, but it was a good idea. And then Trump unilaterally revoked it. This, you can't do this. This is not the way diplomacy works in the world. And about the Jews, do you think that it, it is conscious, they do this with conscience that what they are damaging a foreign culture? Do they know these people in power uh, 
that they are trying to do that because the regular Jew probably doesn't know that, right? The usual guy that reads his scriptures or uh, uh, has his rituals, his family probably doesn't know what he's doing. I might be mistaken. That's why I'm asking. But is this something that Jews know that they are doing, damaging the West and destroying Christianity? Is this their objective? The Jews always have a hostile relationship to the dominant culture wherever they live. They are always fearful of the dominant culture because they're always a minority. And when the dominant culture is Christian, they, they, they hate the dominant culture as much as they fear it because they hate Christianity. And so you can read the novels of uh, Philip Roth, and you can see there's a man that was lionized as a great literary figure, and all he did was respond with hatred, hatred against the country that was buying his books. This is part of what you have to deal with. He's a classic expression of Jewish psychology, where he hates, he's biting the hand that feeds him. How can we talk about this and um, not being labeled with anti-Semitism? I personally don't think we are, uh, because we're not addressing this as uh, evil per evil, as we were judging the race. Right. But how can we, how can you, can we explain? Because people because, might have that idea. Right. First of all, you have to define the word anti-Semitism. It came into existence in Germany at the, toward the end of the 19th century. Wilhelm Marr wrote a book called Der Sieg des uh, Judentums über das Germanentums. Wilhelm Marr was a revolutionary. He participated in the revolutionary, uh, Revolution of 1848 in Hamburg. Uh, he felt that Hamburg had been betrayed by the Jews. They switched sides in the revolution. And he didn't like, uh, he, he hated that fact, didn't like the Jews, but he was also anti-Christian. Yeah, that was part of his revolutionary makeup too. And he didn't like, didn't, the, the, the only critique of Jews up till that time was the religious critique. This is the critique I have used in my book, The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit. I turned away from the, the term anti-Semitism, which was created as a racial term. Mm -hmm. What, what Mar is saying, this is the high noon of biology, biological thinking in Europe. It's the era of Darwin. And now they have an explanation and they're saying the Jews have bad DNA and they are, their behavior is determined by their bad DNA. That is anti, what anti-Semitism is. And I don't believe that. And I don't think anybody believes that anymore. Maybe there are some people, but it's not the dominant uh, ideology now. So the Jew now takes this term. And he uses it to attack anyone that the big Jews don't like. That's what it is. So basically, an anti-Semite used to be someone who didn't like Jews. Now it's someone Jews don't like. And that's the term that the ADL is using to basically shut down the Internet. If, you, if, if, they, if, anything, if they, you say something they don't like, even if it's something that a Jew has already said, they will call you an anti-Semite and they will destroy your ability to earn a livelihood and whatever, hold a job and so on and so forth. This is the battle right now. And we have to face up to the fact that it's, it's identity theft. Mm -hmm. they're, they're imposing an identity on us as Catholics that we do not have. Catholicism does not support the idea of racial inferiority or racial superiority. And that's what anti-Semitism is. It's a racial term. True. I, I don't know, but probably may, you may be aware of this. Um, nowadays in companies, especially in um, funded companies by Silicon Valley and all, they all create these hate speech guidelines where you 
basically they say what you can do or can't do. And usually the terms are really dubious in a way that you, anything can be considered harassment or racism or whatever. And since it comes from Silicon Valley where the money is, it totally makes sense that the, the bigger, bigger companies like um, Salesforce, Microsoft and all, they're all dominated by this or am I wrong? No, you're right. This is the biggest challenge right now. These companies have more power than government. Now, specifically, I can say Google has more power than Ireland. Google conquered Ireland. We have an article in Culture Wars describing how they did it, how these high-tech firms will take over your country. Google or Salesforce is more powerful than the state legislator of the state of Indiana. We know this because Mr. Benioff showed up in uh, Indianapolis and told the legislature to overturn the law they had just passed. Who gave this man the right to, to overturn the laws of the state of Indiana? Who gave him that right? He doesn't have that right. I mean, and, and the problem is that Governor Pence, who is now Vice President Pence, was too stupid to understand what needed to be done at that point. You just have to challenge this man and say, well, who gave you this right? Are, are you a citizen of the state of Indiana? Well, no. Were you elected uh, as a representative, a government official? Well, no. Well, you come from San Francisco. Why do you have the right to tell us what laws we're allowed to have? You're threatening us with uh, economic sanctions. What Pence should have done is say, uh, officer, arrest this man. We're going to put him on trial for attempting to overthrow the government. That's what he should have done. But he was too stupid. Now, to give Pence credit, this is a new technology. It's a new strategy. And uh, people just were, don't, weren't aware of how it worked. But now we're aware. And now we have to challenge these people. The government is going to have to go in and break up Google. It's going to have to break up these big tech uh, uh, monopolies. Amazon is a monopoly on, on book sales. They, they, this, this, these, these companies are now basically utilities. Okay, they're like the gas company or the electric company or the phone company. And the, the analogy to what is happening now is I'm making a phone call and the phone company listens in and doesn't like what I'm saying on the phone. And so they discontinue my, my, my uh, phone service or the gas company doesn't like what I say. So they're not going to, uh, uh, they're going to cut off my gas in the middle of the winter. This is exactly what's happening right now. And government has to step in or else the entire world is going to be ruled by this tyrannical group of tech giants. And the thing is that it's not only the US, you're right. It's the entire world. In here in Portugal, it's the same thing. Big companies um, are funding um, the best jobs. They are hiring the best people. And then they usually do the brainwashing or uh, the, the mandatory brainwashing that they need to do. And you, you, it, it, it kind of, it's similar to what you've described in Libido Dominandi with the Jesuit uh, way that they do mind control in a way that they, first they hired all the best, they, they get the best people working for them, then they kind of like treat them in a way that um, they convert to their, that lifestyle, which is being. Right. Why do you, do you think it's coincidence oh, that all of these be, be, big tech companies all promote homosexuality? Do you think that's coincidence? No. It's a form of control. This is the way you create a docile workforce. You allow them to indulge their sexual passions. You give them a, a permission slip to indulge in their sexual passions, and they become your slave. That's exactly what happened. 
The architect of this was Michel Foucault, the French philosopher, who came, his deal, he'd made a pact with the devil, and it's basically, if you give us unlimited sexual liberation, we will not ask for a raise. That's the deal. That is the new tyranny right now. And it means uh, you have no economic freedom because you have sexual freedom. Yep. And how do, um, I know you're not uh, supposed to be a guru or, or any, of any kind, but how can Catholics uh, fight this uh, in their lifestyle uh, every day, working for these companies? It's quite hard. Uh, working for the company? Good luck. Yeah. <laughs> Good luck. I, I, one, one, I just talked to a... Uh, Uh, a, uh, a man who is uh, working in a hospital and uh, the blacks will deliberately uh, bait him, get him into an argument, and then they'll report him, even though they're harassing him and he'll get fired. He's been fired twice. So you're, you're, uh, uh, I don't know how to work. You, do you have the freedom to object to homosexuality if you're an employee no. of Google? No, you don't. Even Google, like the, the, even startups, small startups, it's, uh, it's mandatory that you believe in that. Um, basically, it's uh, their own Bible, right? They, don't, they have their commandments and you must obey the, those commandments. This, are, it is they, a state religion. Yeah, exactly. This is the imposition of a state religion like Rome and you have to in, offer in, uh, incense to idols. <laughs> in order to be a, a Roman citizen in good standing, you have to offer incense to idols. And the idol you have to offer it up to is homosexuality, one of the idols. One of the, exactly, that are, that are more. Um, I, you, you mentioned uh, the Jewish revolutionary spirit, and I wanted to ask if this was present in the Second Council, the Second Vatican Council, because you mentioned that um, Catholicism capitulated there. And I wanted to understand your perspective on how yes. it... First of all, the, the council documents are not a capitulation. They are part of the magisterium of the church. There is nothing wrong with the council documents that can't be solved by interpreting them in the light of tradition. It's very simple. All documents have to be interpreted in light of tradition. If they are interpreted in light of tradition, then there's, there's not a problem. On the other hand, there was an attempt to subvert the council. We've documented, too, in the Jewish revolutionary spirit, I talk about Malachi Martin, the Jesuit, who was basically a double agent working for B'nai B'rith and the American Jewish Committee. They were paying him through uh, book royalties uh, to undermine the church's teaching that the Jews killed Christ. That's what they wanted, and they did not get it. It's they still failed. there. It's still It's there. Still there. It's still there. You cannot change the fact that the Jews killed Christ, no matter how much money you spend. It, it's not going to work. Okay, now, the document is, uh, does not uh, undermine that teaching, but then you have the Jewish-controlled media taking the document and basically interpreting it to mean what they said, not what the church said. The biggest crisis in the church is that it cannot interpret its own documents because they do not control the media. And on top of that, it's even worse because of Catholic-Jewish dialogue. The Jews control the mind of Catholics, including bishops. This is a crisis. We cannot proceed if, if our minds are being controlled by our enemies. We, we need to stop internalizing the commands of our oppressors. That's what has to happen now. And how can we do this if, um, for example, the term collegiality, which started in the Second Council, the way that it is exerts today with the um, 
synods of bishops or bishops. I don't know how we translate that to English, but probably synods yeah. of bishops, yeah, yeah. which is kind of like implement, in, in implementation of a republic or democra- democracy in uh, every church, every uh, diocese, and then every country. Uh, isn't this the problem? And isn't this why the church can't uh, discipline anyone? Right. Yes, it is a problem. How do you liberate your mind? You liberate your mind by reading books like The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit and Libido Dominandi. That's why I wrote these books. The liberation has to start here. If you are confused, you cannot proceed to do anything because you don't know what to do. We have to spread the consciousness that the and a return to the traditional church's teaching on the Jews. Okay, which is uh, as I identify in uh, libido domin. Uh, I'm sorry, in the Jewish revolutionary spirit, it's secret Judeus non. No one has the right to harm the Jew, but the church and Christian cultures have a right to defend themselves against Jewish subversion. Both of those things have to be implemented. Yep, uh, and because uh, on my perspective, and um, I'll be, I, I'm going to ask about the SSPX later on. Um, and I'm, I attend the SSPX there, and I've uh, heard the podcast where you, you're not that nice to the SSPX. But the, <laughs> in any case, I, I wanted to know that um, how can we do that if, for example, Father Skilibex, uh, he, he told one of the council mentors, or not mentors, but one of the influencers, he told uh, someone it's written elsewhere. It's not a dogma of faith, but he basically told that, yeah, we want these documents to have a, this... Um, kind of writing and to be laxed in a way that they are, they are not compartmental. They are not the juridic document and later we'll be able to interpret them. And yes. what happened is people actually got off the track, bishops, priests, and now it seems like even popes, they got off the track in how to interpret Catholic um, dogma and Catholic faith. So how can we lay people and you've wrote two books. How can we do this in our own parishes? How can we do this in, in real life? by first forming your mind and understanding the problem. For example, uh, Archbishop Vigano keeps saying that uh, Vatican II is the problem. This is a misunderstanding of the issue. Vigano has done no research into Vatican II. He's just spouting off these things. If If he had done the research that I did in Jewish Revolutionary Spirit into, for example, the Jewish subversion, attempted Jewish subversion of Nostra Tate and why it failed, he wouldn't be saying this. Okay, so first you have to clarify the, uh, the, the issue here. What's the problem? Uh, yes, there are heretics. Yes, large segments of the church have been taken over by heresy. The Jesuit order in America is a classic example of that. It's run by a friend of mine, a Jesuit just died, Paul Mankowski. He was a brilliant man. He had a degree in classics from the University of Chicago, a degree in classics from Oxford, and a PhD in Semitic philology from Harvard University. He was a brilliant writer, a brilliant satirist, and he was persecuted by the Jesuits who made James Martin their poster boy. That guy, that priest is inside. This, this is proof of, of the apostasy of this order and it's proof why the, why the order should be suppressed. Okay? Again. <laughs> 
And uh, about the SXPX, um, I know that you uh, had a, an argument with Michael Davis. You, had, you were lucky enough to meet him in person. And right. I think he's a brilliant writer and a thinker. And despite you didn't agree with him, I uh, would love to understand if that changed across the years because it, Pope Francis did. No. The no. So I've already established we have a problem with heresy. Schism is not the cure for heresy. It's a temptation that you undergo when you're confronted with heresy. Okay, the classic example was the Donatist at the time of St. Augustine. Okay, they're scandalized by the fact that um, the church allows people who offered incense up to idols back into communion with the church. They were forgiven. Donatists would not allow that. Okay, they were a Judaizing sect. Most people don't know that. Uh, they wanted to maintain a kind of Jewish purity, and they didn't want to have contact with sinners. Okay, well, Jesus Christ had contact with sinners. Okay, we're all sinners. So you can't have a church where there are no sinners. That's the Donatist uh, mentality. That was led to schism. What did Augustine say? Schism is lack of charity. You cannot be saved if you refuse to associate with fellow members of the Catholic Church, because that's lack of charity. Schism is different than heresy. Schism is not the cure for heresy. Schism is the, 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 the instinctive reaction to heresy, mm -hmm. and that's wrong. And now, to get, to get to the point here, um, no, I haven't changed my mind. I mean, I, Bishop Williamson, is a, uh, uh, I consider him a friend. He stayed at my house twice. He invited me up to the seminary in Winona to talk about horror movies when I wrote my book, uh, Monsters from the Id. Uh, when Ratzinger, when Pope Benedict lifted the excommunications, I thought, here's a moment of opportunity. So I went to England. I went to the headquarters of the SSPX in Wimbledon. Basically walk in the door, and there's Bishop Williamson saying, I have a letter from Rome. Um, I accept Vatican II in light of tradition. That's the letter. I said, well, go up and sign it. That's the only reason I came here. He said, well, Archbishop Lefebvre would have signed that letter. I said, what? You mean he would have, and you're not going to sign it? And so for three hours, we went back and forth about why he's not going to assign it. Okay. Got nowhere. We had no meeting in the minds. <laughs> yeah. I won't, I won't do that here as well. So if Bishop Williamson didn't but, convince but this, So that's the prize Bishop Williamson's problem. I did my best. I won't be condemned for his errors because I tried to correct his errors. But after that, I gave a talk to the entire leadership of the SSPX in England. And the talk was based on the parable of Christ in the boat. The boat, is the church. And the boat is always going to be tossed about by storms because the storms are the work of the devil. And when you're going through a storm in the boat and you're scared, it always seems as if Jesus Christ is asleep. That's what they're saying. He's asleep in the back of the boat. So finally, they can't take it anymore. And they grab him and say, don't you care that we're all going to die? <laughs> and Christ wakes up and calms the storm. And he says, where is your faith? That's our situation right now. The church, that boat is the church. Let's put it this way. If you jump out of the boat during a storm, that's instant death. You're going to die immediately. 
That is the whole point of that thing. And the point is the same thing. If you jump out of the church during one of these periods of crisis, you will not be saved because uh, every traditionalist believes extra ecclesium nulla salus. And you have separated yourself by this act of schism from the body of the church. And so you cannot be saved. Well, in this case, um, the way, just giving the perspective on why, and you know it, what the SXPS um, perspective is, basically the second council, or from that moment, it was not the council, but people from there onwards with the changing of the sacraments and all, what it happens is that people actually, um, bishops and priests, they are creating the schism, not the, not the... Yeah, I know. This is what Bishop Williams had told me. Yeah. You know, so basically Bishop Williamson is the Catholic Church and everybody else is wrong. No, no, no. And everybody's going to have to come around to Bishop Williamson's point of view because he is the Athanasius of our age. This is, I've, I've, uh, I had this discussion with him. I heard <laughs> it from his own mouth. I will tell you from his own mouth what he said. The church has tuberculosis. If we associate with the church, we are going to get tuberculosis. Therefore, we have to separate from the church. Bishop Fele says the same thing, uh, just slightly different. Bishop Fele says the church has cancer. If we associate with the church, we're going to get cancer. Therefore, we have to separate from the church. Now, that's bad medicine. You can't contract cancer. But it's the same principle. It's the same schismatic attitude. And what about the, the, the sacraments? Have you ever um, uh, noticed that there was a big difference in the way that the Mass is, uh, is, is said and the way that... Um, the baptism is done. Um, doesn't this change? And this doesn't this act kind of like a, a schism in a way? Not, it's not a schism because they're still Catholic and the rites are still valid and Catholic. But isn't it strange that the Catholic faith decided to change all of that right before, after the, the council? Especially are you, help are you saying that the, the sacraments of the Catholic Church are not valid? Are no, 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 no. That? No, I'm saying that they are valid. Well, then what's the problem? Then there's no problem. Just, of just, course, there are going to be problems with heretics and lunatics, like Medjugorje nuts, exactly. all responding to the same uh, problem, okay? But the, the, the sacraments are valid if you say they're... I, look, I've dealt with people who say they're not valid. You can go down that road, too. I tried to have a conference where I brought together... This was my attempt around the same time to bring all these groups together together. And I said, well, there's a trident mass down here. If you want to go to that, it's uh, uh, permitted by the local diocese. Well, they wouldn't go because they felt that there might be uh, hosts in that ciborium that were consecrated at a Novus Ordo mass. And therefore, those hosts had never been transformed into the body and blood of Christ. This is schismatic thinking. This is dead-end thinking. You have jumped out of the boat and you drowned and you don't even know it. That's the problem here. And um, I'm not uh, talking to you, by the way. No, this, no, is, no. <laughs> this is a way of speaking. You know, a German would say man tut und so was, but Americans tend to say you, meaning in people in general, this, this, uh, this group that I'm talking about. I'm not talking about you personally. No, but I knew, I knew that this, uh, we would disagree in some points here, but uh, obviously I'm here to learn with what you have to say. And um, yeah, these things are kind of like on fate and uh, they are they take a bit more time to digest and um, since Bishop Williamson didn't get you to, to to his point of view I'm not even going to try of course and I didn't and, get him to my point of view either so my my, my, my question here also is now that we've um, made uh, the journey up until the second Vatican Council uh, 
is what about Pope Francis? Um, you know that there are some documents that are quite hard to understand that uh, in light of tradition, uh, especially those that, uh, for example, with the remarriages and all. How can we stay faithful to, to, our, to Pope and um, while listening to this? Is it same behavior? Just um, wait that Jesus wakes or how shall we behave? Yeah, you wait till the storm, the storm dies down and you don't jump out of the boat. Obviously, there's a storm. No one's denying that there is a storm. There is problem within the church. The, 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 the problem uh, of the Jesuit order is crying out for resolution. It's crying to heaven. It's sodomy. It's crying to heaven for vengeance. Okay? And the Pope is a Jesuit, and he's doing nothing about it. So, therefore, what do we do? Jump out of the boat? No, you don't. You wait until the storm dies down. And isn't it um, um, okay to wait until the storm dies out with people that keep the same faith before the start, the, which is the Catholic faith that has 2,000 years, before the storm was unleashed? Of course, you have to do that. All right, perfect. But, but <laughs> uh, you know, which group are you talking about? <laughs> well, uh, anyone practicing the same faith that it was um, until that it was established and done until the Second Council, for example. But... Um, I do think that there is a risk. I've been, I don't know if you know the group called Resistance. I will probably know it. It's Bishop Willensman that founded it. Uh, uh, no, I didn't know he formed a group. I haven't had any contact oh. with him for, uh, since okay. I met him in Wimbledon. So unfortunately, he had, um, there's a problem with being a traditionalist, like you mentioned, and that problem is not, it's not a problem per se, but it can be a risk of uh, being, having a systematic mentality, right? Yes. Like when you're a Catholic, there's a risk of going to hell. That's part of being a Catholic. Right. And, and um, he left the SXPS because of um, some disagreements he had with the hierarchy in the, in the SXPS because Bishop Pillay wanted to, to stay in touch with the Vatican because we, right. we, we as SXPS, we own that to the Vatican. We are Catholics, of course. And um, he left the SXPS and he, he founded some a resi group called Resistance, which is... They are not sad vacantists, but they are, um, I do think that they're, they're really close to that schismatic reasoning because, yeah, that's, he's leaving that and he's building a hierarchy like that. Contrary. Okay. Yeah. Is he going to consecrate a bishop before he dies? That's the problem. Yeah, that's the thing. And um, I do think that it's there, there's a risk of schism, of schism definitely, if it's, if, because there is, there is no hierarchy, there is no dialogue with Rome. And I don't know if it's, it was because of your talks or because of what you did or uh, what the Holy Spirit did, but actually Monsignor Tissier and um, Bernard Fillet, they were close to, uh, to, to, to the Vatican. That's why they are now, they can celebrate Mass, they can confess, they are, they, it's licit now. The Pope professors gave them permission to do that. And so I think that there's only certain canonical matters to this question, which need to be solved, especially because of just the, there are some problems that they find in the documents of the Vatican Council. Um, but other than that, I wanted to ask if these, this, this homosexuality problem that I find, and I've studied, I mastered in theology here in Portugal. And um, what I found was, I wasn't even, a, I wasn't even baptized when I went to college, and I found that it was full of homosexuality and full of, uh, How can I say um, liberalism? 
just to put it that what? way. What was full? The university? Uh, yeah, both the university and seminaries. Okay. And my question is, did this Jewish revolutionary spirit invaded the church? Um, and that's what you, is that what you identify when you talk about the Jesuits? Oh, yes. First of all, uh, there is a, a, a constellation here of heresies that go together. And uh, the Jesuits have both of them. So they are the most philo-Semitic organization uh, in the Catholic Church, and they are also the most pro-homosexual organization in the Catholic Church. And uh, they are also being subverted I just, I, uh, by Soros' money. I just found out that there are Jesuit NGOs that get money from George Soros, who is the main uh, Jewish uh, uh, promoter of revolution in the United States of America. So there, and, and on top of that, there is another layer of, of heresy here, and it's called Americanism, <laughs> where basically America is the, uh, the promoter of this type of, of uh, sexual liberation. And so they are the big supporters of America, big supporters of the Jews, big supporters of homosexuality, and big supporters of George Soros. All of these things. Now, Bergoglio is a Jesuit. And the one thing he, one thing when you're talking to me about the new situation, it's muddier now than it's ever been. With the SSPX, it's muddy. And also the and better example is Medjugorje. Oh, that's even worse. That's been, it's even worse. It's yeah. even worse because they appointed a, a Polish bishop to go there and talk about how the pilgrims are supposed to be treated. This bishop did not meet with Bishop Perich, who has condemned Medjugorje as a fraud. We have, we have no ability to come to clarity now on anything, as far as I can tell, because Bergoglio, uh, Pope Francis, is not a man of ideas. He's not a man of ideas. He's not a man who believes in principle. He's a man who believes, you know, talk on the phone with this woman and tell the pastor that I told him to let you receive communion. Bang down the phone. That, that's a, he has this idea of pastoral care that has no understanding of how principle fits into the pastoral care of, of people in the church. Got it. And um, yes, definitely there's a problem. You have not only the Jesuits, now you have those, I don't know how you call it in the U.S., the ones that they, they consecrate a really, really big slice of bread and um, they're kind of like a Jew. Monsignor um, Schneider, uh, Bishop Athanasius Schneider, con con condemned them as being totally a, a Jewish sect, but they are still Catholic and they were approved by Pope John Paul II. So it's, um, we're really- Do you really... know the name, name of the group? Do you know the name of the group? Um, I, can, I can Google it if you wish, but- uh, we, have, we have a converso problem in the United States of America right now. We have Jews converting to Catholicism who are not abandoning the, Jew, the Judaism that they let, they're supposed to leave behind. And so you have people like Dawn Goldstein attacking fellow Catholics as anti-Semites. This is not Catholic behavior. This is lack of charity. Totally. And uh, the movement that I'm talking about, this Judaizing moment, the movement is the neocatcommunal neo way. Do you okay. know that? No, I don't know them. Yeah, so it's uh, it's a really it's really if you think that the SXPS is might be bad, you should look at this. It's like crazy. They they have the menorah on the table. They celebrate mass with the menorah. And Judaism has always been a temptation for Catholics. Uh, uh, Saint John Chrysostom was writing about Antioch, and the Jews were luring 
Catholics into their synagogues by putting on musical performances. And they were infecting them with Judaizing principles of the kind that I talked about. Donatists were Judaizers, you know. Uh, it's always been a problem. It's, it's a problem today. And just to close this interview, I would love to ask, how come you're an American? And usually the perspective that I have, might be, I might be wrong, is that Americans see the world in two ways. Either it's uh, the liberal way or Democrats or the Republican way, which is kind of like conservative. And I do think that both sides, when you talk about like you did, like the government must tell Benioff what to do. They always say you're a socialist or a communist because the government should be like really small. How can you as American, um, or uh, how do you behave? Is, is, it, is it true that this perspective, is it true what I'm saying, that the Americans have this perspective? Sure, sure. You, you, can, you have an acceptable identity as an American if you identify either as a Republican or a Democrat. That's the way you get, uh, that's called assimilation. That's the way you, you get uh, a, a chance to talk. You have to internalize the commands of one part or one party or the other of your oppressor. And isn't that, aren't both connected to capitalism in a way that it makes uh, that experiment of, of, of uh, because either we want it or not, Americans are now leading the world in culture and media and whatever. So um, isn't that a, a, a ad reductio way of, of having uh, politics? Because it seems like it's condemned for liberal, for liberal thinking forever. Yes, it is a way of producing control over the Catholic population. That just, just because they try to do it doesn't mean it succeeds. There was pressure for me. There was pressure for me at the beginning to become a conservative. It never worked. I couldn't do it. I, I just don't have that Anglophile mentality because, I'm, as I said before, I'm biracial. I'm half Irish and half German. And neither of those groups like the English. So I speak English, I'm, I'm a, in a, a, a kind of Anglo culture, but because I'm a Catholic, I always felt that I was uh, kind of outside of the, of the mainstream. And I was, as a Catholic, yes, I was. Yeah, because, and you are. I wouldn't say uh, Amazon is banning people like um, the, the neoconservatives that you see always signing with Trump. So there no. might be something that they, did, that they didn't like. And it's not only the Jews, it's, I think it's the way that you grasped the entire situation and you summed up the last 300 years really well. Oh, it's the, it's the, it's the point of being a Catholic. <laughs> you know, you have insight. You, you can't just generalize from your own particular situation in your own particular country because you've got Catholics all over the world. Uh, so I, I went to Kenya. I was being interviewed by a, a reporter And she, I was talking about sexual liberation. And she said, well, why do you care about what happens in Kenya? Well, I said, well, they're Catholics over here. <laughs> we're, we're, we're part of the same group, aren't we? Aren't we? Well, she was taken aback by that because you're a, she sees a Mazungu. You know, you're a Mazungu. You're a white guy. And that's your identity. Well, no, that's not my identity. I keep telling people that's not my identity. That's identity theft. It's identity theft to say I'm white. I'm not white. Do I have five minutes to talk about the, this whole COVID situation? Just really fast to know your opinion, because I tend to say it's kind of like um, they're trying to do this. They're trying to take this pandemic, you know, uh, to do exactly what the church did for the last 2000 years, to have one language, to have one, one same religion. And does this pandemic in, in basically fits the narrative of these Jewish revolutionary um, soldiers we have nowadays commanding the world? Well, uh, it not, it's not apparent. 
because Anthony Fauci is a Catholic and Bill Gates is not a Jew, so it's not apparent. But I mean, you have to look at the big perspective here, which is basically the, the deep state declared war on Donald Trump in 2016. And they've been waging war against him for the, the entire time of his presidency. In 2019, the deep state lost control of the narrative. And so there was a big battle over speech in the internet. Uh, they did, they're still, that battle is still going on. But as we approach the election, there are going to be more and more overt attempts to destroy Donald Trump. And COVID is one of them. COVID took everyone by surprise. First of all, it was, uh, I think it's pretty clear, it was a weapon. It was a bioweapon. It was created in Wuhan in China uh, with American money. Uh, And then it escaped into the population. It's dangerous for a certain group of people, but it's not all that different than the seasonal flu that takes place, but it got played up. It, it was orchestrated into a global pandemic uh, as an attempt to rescue the oligarch cont- control over the entire world. That's, what, that's what's at stake here. And it's orchestrated particularly in Democrat states like Michigan. Uh, you, you know, only die there. It's incredible. You can only die if you like I can cross the border from Indiana to Michigan and suddenly I'm, I'm in danger of dying when I wasn't in danger in, in Indiana or the classic. So that, that was not the final thing. Then we have Black Lives Matter. Then we have all these riots. And it turns out that you're not allowed to associate in public because you catch the coronavirus unless you're protesting the death of George Floyd, in which case you don't have to wear a mask and you can be packed together like sardines. So it's the, the political machinations here are, are obvious now. Yep. And uh, the main goal is basically to turn us into a social state like China, no? with the control. With I the think act. that's right. I think that they are the first people that were, got used to wearing masks. I think that the mask is an important sign of whether you're a good citizen, according to their point of view. And this is a form of control. You know, it's one form of control after another. And uh, I think if you, if you take, let's say, I think 9-11 was a, a coup d'etat. I think it was a false flag operation. I think the assassination of the Kennedys was a coup d'etat. But it took a long time for people to realize what was going on, whereas now everybody, a lot of people realized immediately this is uh, political in its orchestration. It's orchestrated for political ends. Whether there's a virus or not is irrelevant. There's always a virus out there. <laughs> there's always something that's going to make people sick. And to, t- to lock down the entire economy and destroy our freedoms uh, is all political. It has nothing to do with the disease. Yep. Here in, in Europe, uh, we are living like a, kind of like a second USSR. I don't know if you've been here for the past few years, but the new European Union has basically crashed um, sovereignty of, of of all the governments of, of Europe, especially smaller countries like Portugal, Spain, right. Italy. And um, what is happening is they're like with these shutdowns and lockdowns, they're kind of like forcing everybody to go into state dependence. And with these state dependence you will have uh, obviously the ability to have a an app on your web on your mobile phone that you don't won't get your money from the state if you do this or that if you really That's do. right. That's right. Look so, at, look yeah. at what look, look at what happened in France. The yellow vest protest was part of like Brexit, it's like the Trump phenomenon in America. These are protests against oligarchic rule. Well, COVID eliminated the yellow vest protest. 
this is what, uh, what in Germany, it seems to have an opposite effect. It mobilized the German people. The German people were so beaten down by Jewish commissars. They didn't know what to, they were the most politically correct country in the world. And then suddenly COVID comes and they find their identity. Uh, and the German scientists are the best in terms of being reliable about what's going on. And the German people showed up in Berlin, a million people. They had to be demonized by their own government. So it had uh, an opposite effect uh, than what the oligarchs intended in Germany. Perfect. Well, just wanted to get your, uh, just a, a quick idea on this situation. I guess uh, we're all in the same boat here. And um, I wish that uh, the US and the, I don't know, the US and the EU could be less communist. I don't think they are Marxist. You mentioned that they were Marxist, uh, either both sides of the, either Antifa, both Antifa and BLM. Are, is it correct to say that they're more Marcusian than Marxist or? Yes, it's new. It's new left. It's Foucault. It's not Karl Marx. It's sexual liberation rather than economic uh, injustice. By the way, since, since we're in Portugal now, uh, that was one of the classic instances of pornography as a weapon. After Salazar, after the fall of Salazar, Lisbon was flooded with pornography, and it was Frank Carlucci of the CIA who did it to the Portuguese people. Don't get me started with that, because we in Portugal, Salazar has been completely demonized, uh, demonized for the past 40 years. Right. And um, the idea is that he was uh, completely wrong and he was uh, really a, a dictator in the, in the worst sense. But the thing is, Portugal went up in all of the parameters. If you look at that data, uh, people became more literate. People, the, there was no external death. Right. He knew what the Jews were doing, so he had no external death. We had gold. We had an empire. And in 1974, basically, with the help of the U.S., unfortunately, and the That's US, right. We were completely decimated with our empire. and That's right. That's because he's white. That's because Salazar was white. He was really a racist. He probably had black slaves. He, he was a true Catholic, and it, it's beautiful to see that even um, Paul VI, the, the Pope, was, he was more on the modernist side. Like, uh, more, he was more like, not like Catholic because he was a Pope, but he was not like Pius Twelfth and Salazar, when he received it, it was kind of like a clash because Salazar was much more conservative than him, but still received it, of course. Still received him. Um, and now it's happening the same in, in, in Spain. I don't know if Right, Franco, right. The, the demonization of Franco. It's the same type of thing. What, who, is, who, who is opposing Franco? Who is upset about Franco? Who is upset about Salazar? Oh, well, we have an old communist remnant here. I don't know if you know, but Portugal has still has a PCP, which is Portuguese Communist Party, and it's official. And it's there was always a left wing element in Spain around uh, Barcelona. The Catalan uh, uh, group was always left wing in its orientation, and it was the well. It's too complicated to get into right now. <laughs> I would love if you could write something about that. If you have done your research, you write really well. So just do something with Portugal and Spain because they seem to be two clusters that the Second World War couldn't break, where Churchill and all the Freemasons and everybody couldn't break. And we were broke later on by the American Empire, unfortunately, and the Russian. But basically, there, were, right. there was a proxy war between Russia and United States, and they took the, the, right. our empire. But uh, if you could do research on that, it would be beautiful. Yes. Thank you so much for this, for this conversation. I really enjoyed it. Um, sorry about my English. It's not perfect. Oh, your English is, you should hear my Portuguese. <laughs> well, have you been to Fatima, by the way? 
I have, yes, I have. I was there in the 80s, 1980s. Oh, you should go there now. It's, um, or maybe don't, just keep the old idea that you had of the old building in Basilica. Now we have a modernist one with the... I heard that. I yeah. Heard that. <laughs> so, uh, but it would, be, it would be great to have, um, to have you back in Portugal. It's always nice to have. I'd love to come. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. E. Michael Jones, for this podcast. And um, I hope that it will be of your liking the way I edit it and post it online. And I'll Thank burn. you.